Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Jake, how you doing today? I am doing great. How are you, Randy? I'm doing good, too. Uh, had spring kind of arrive, and then spring kind of got taken away. It got really cold and said, no, not yet. You're going to have to uh, wait a little while before any warm weather comes. So I don't know what you're experiencing down there in Portland. Uh, it's interesting. It's kind of the opposite, actually. It was supposed to rain all weekend last weekend, and then... What do you know? The clouds cleared up on Sunday and it was in the high 50s and we were jamming outside. It was awesome. It's so weird how Seattle and Portland can be so different when we're actually pretty close to each other. That always amazes me. I want to ask you a question, Mr. G. So when was your first tournament? Do you remember that specifically? Uh, yeah, very, very much. Actually, it was a big influence on my the, my future uh, uh, so yeah, it was in 1996 in Yakima, Washington. It was the the Kite and Flight Festival. I think I was 21 at the time, you know, and I had never been to any events like that. I'd been jamming with the people in Santa Rosa and a little bit in the Bay Area. Uh, it was just an amazing, amazing experience and also very intimidating. Yeah, those actually, those those kite festival tournaments had really amazing turnouts. They were very deep, deep fields. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, so I met you there and i met um arthur cunnington and dave lewis who are those guys i think dan swanson was one of the guys and who was the other guy that played with dan craig burris craig burris yeah mike conway and mike i don't think i don't know if mike was there but i remember those other two so i played with steve the beast that's right he was my first partner and uh we tied for last place we didn't get last place we tied for last place with Doug Corns and Steve Scannell. That's right. I remember this story. Now, I, I ask you because, so I started playing in 1978-ish in there, and I don't remember my first tournament. And it was, I think it was because there was just so much going on in the Frisbee scene. I mean, there was a, a Frisbee club, the Olympic Windjammers, and, you know, Ultimate was really going on, and disc golf, and and there was all these people around. There wasn't just like a specific tournament. Um, there was always some kind of activity. So I don't remember, like, I don't have this seminal moment of like, oh, this was the freestyle tournament that was the beginning because it was like everybody was doing everything. It was, you know, just overall. So I don't have a specific memory. My only memory is, is having a friend seen an NAS tournament in Lower Woodland. And then he came back to where I lived in Snohomish. We had 40 acres up in the middle of nowhere and we ended up making a disc golf course on our property. And so that's kind of how I started, but I don't remember like a specific tournament. I just remember being introduced to the whole Seattle scene, Olympic Windjammer Frisbee club and people like Doug Newland and Jeff Jorgensen and Don Bielke and Don Bishop and all those people. But uh, yeah, I, I was, I was the young and I was like, 15, 16 years old and totally taken with the whole thing. Actually, maybe even younger than that. I ask this because uh, our episode today is a, a little bit more with John Kirkland, and he gives his timeline, his perspective of his journey. And it's just amazing to me how much he remembers like exact dates and exact times. And I just don't have that skill set. 
Yeah, I don't totally. I th- he's got it a lot better than I do. That's for sure. It's it's yeah. fascinating to hear because he was there in some of the the earliest times of frisbee tournaments and uh, the inventions of so many things. So it's pretty cool yes. that he has got that much detail in his head. Okay, cool. Well, with that, we're going to just jump into the episode. So enjoy. The timeline for me was from that first exposure in '73 in the spring at J. Edgar Hoover Day to the Frisbee fling in the park to IFT in September of that year at Labor Day because there were some fired warnings at in the Upper Peninsula over July 4th. After the Labor Day tournament in, at the IFT and I met all the Berkeley folks, I went out and visited with Roger at the Big Games tournament in November and got the list from Roger, went up and down the coast, went and visited Stork in December, started doing halftimes for MIT basketball team, and then doing halftimes for the Boston Celtics. And then there was the Octad tournament, which was just a wonderful thing. And and for me, the only trophy that I have up in my house was from winning that first Octad, the little cup, because it meant a whole lot to me. And then uh, after that, I got the gig with the Globetrotters solidified, but it it wasn't going to start until later in the year. This is now the summer of 73. There was the American Flying Disc Open, which was a big deal. Then there was the Toronto Tournament, Freestyle Tournament. And Victor and I were working hard on our Globetrotter routine. And right before, I mean, like, Two days before that tournament, he got a beer commercial. I think it was Stroh's Beer or someone, and he had to go do that. Coincidentally, that was also in Canada, but on the on the, on the east side of Canada, Montreal or somewhere, and we were in, in Toronto. So I, all of a sudden, I'm without a partner in that first freestyle tournament. I ended up playing with Jose Montalvo, and he introduced the first glimmerings of delay by using a stick to sort of balance the disc on momentarily. You, you have to keep in mind that delays weren't really possible in those days because of all the writing that was on the bottom of the disc. But I'll get back to that. In terms of the timeline, after that Toronto tournament, there was then the Rose Bowl. After the Rose Bowl, there was the Jersey Jam. And then right after the Jersey Jam, Victor and I went on the road with the Globetrotters 200 cities in 180 days. That fills out 73 and 74. Okay. So that is a great dovetail into the Harlem Globetrotters experience because it seems like that was also a light bulb moment for Whammo, seeing that it could be a sport. Is that correct? And if so, just kind of walk us through how that whole story happened. You know, I, I mentioned cusps before about how things are in these precarious, unstable equilibria, fall one way or the other, and it just takes a little teeny nudge one way or the other. Hedrick and Whammo had already decided that Frisbee was just a toy and was never going to be a sport. And getting that to nudge back the other way on the other side to it being a sport, in retrospect, seems like such an obvious thing. But at the time, it wasn't obvious at all. And I'm not sure... I mean, I, I vacillate. Sometimes I think it was always going to happen. And sometimes I think 
you know, it didn't have to happen except for this extraordinary culmination of unlikely events that made it happen. But the Globetrotters certainly played a pivotal role in not so much uh, convincing Whammo as it can is it spread. It it was the first tour to spread frisbee throughout the country. I mean, we were in 200 cities in 180 days. We went everywhere and played to anywhere between 2,000 to 25,000 people every night. And we spread it throughout the country. It seemed like a lot was happening at that time. We had a Sports Illustrated article. We were doing lots of TV shows. It just, it all seemed to come together. But a year earlier, there was nothing. And it's so interesting to to see how these these few little things, uh, I guess I guess it was just a movement that was afoot that was going to happen anyhow. But through my eyes, I just went from seeing like it was like pulling teeth to get anybody to do anything to all of a sudden everything is happening. It's a fascinating thing. That Globetrotters was certainly a, a watershed moment for me also because uh, – it, it, it awakened me to all, you know, the size of America and the whole thing about performing in front of people and, you know, how you hold yourself and all that. It was it was a very transforming moment. I have heard stories of you guys doing one of the Harlem Globetrotters shows, and I think it was Madison Square Garden, and that there were some Whammo executives who were at that show, and you guys had this mind-blowing performance. And that they kind of, that was where there was also some light bulb moments for Whammo to see it going into this sport realm instead of a toy realm. It, is that just an urban legend or did that happen? Well, that particular show out of the 200 that we did uh, was a really good one. Victor and I had nothing else to do but play Frisbee all day. And it was indoors. And we were very, very tight. I mean... In 200 shows, I bet you there weren't four drops. I mean, I'm not kidding. It, it, I, it's hard to imagine it, but it was indoors, and it's all we did, and we were in the prime of our lives, and we were tight. We, it was so choreographed. I choreographed it to music. I played the, the music. I had a bunch of buddies. I was a jazz musician in Boston while all of this was going on, and I had some pretty good players on that, on that uh, soundtrack, but... By the time we got to Madison Square Garden, which was in February of 75, we were easily 100 shows in, and we were just, we were just tight. I mean, we had just, you do it every night, and you sign autographs, and you just do it over and over and over long enough, and you, you, you've got the routine down. I remember the Madison Square Garden gig really well, because after appropriately uh, achieving the right combination of uh, chemical balance, running out onto the court... 25,000 New Yorkers sitting there getting ready to watch the Globetrotters. Now, keep in mind that, that Victor and I did the pregame show. So we are the first thing that the crowd saw. This is before the Globetrotters, before anything. And we come running out, and Victor goes running out on the court. I come running out and let my breath out, foggy breath. And it wasn't from the cold. And I reach back and just throw this MTA as hard as I could possibly throw, just with everything I had. And it went soaring up into the nether regions of the garden, up past the air conditioning units, soaring way out over the crowd. And it's floating back, floating back, floating back over their outstretched hands, swish through the basket. Victor catches it. 
And that was the beginning of that show. And it went for 25 minutes. I mean, I almost get goosebumps remembering it because I remember dunking the basket and hitting like 15 inches up my arm next to my elbow. I mean, it was just one of those times when it, the floor just seemed springy, you know, everything came together. And coincidentally, that was the first show that Hedrick had seen and all the Whammo reps and a bunch of the New Yorkers were also there. Uh, Cray Van Sickle and Jerry Linus, and th those folks were all there. Carrie, they came to see it. And it was just an unbelievable show. And afterwards, Ed Hedrick and I, actually after the show, Cray Van Sickle and I went out in the cold and played catch while everybody else was watching the Globetrotters. And I said, man, this kid, he was 14, had hair down to his waist. And I said, this kid's going to be something. But more on that later. After the show, Ed and I, Hedrick and I went out to Central Park and it's, you know, 45 degrees and a, a nice sunny afternoon, just the two of us. And we're playing catch. And I said to him, you know, we're talking about Frisbees and the sport and where it's going. And, you know, I keep talking about these cusps and these little nudges that it takes in order to upset the unstable equilibrium. And that was one of those afternoons. He's telling me that when ball golfers compete, they all use the same ball. And it doesn't matter what ball it is, as long as you have some metric to determine the relative distance. He's making the case that since Whammo is the only game in town, we don't really need a better disc than the Whammo Pro. There's no reason to even make a better disc. And I got him to play catch with a CPI for the first time. And instead of being able to play catch at 30 yards, all of a sudden he can play catch at 40 yards. And the, the absolute feeling of playing catch farther apart and being able to throw farther impressed him. And his mind was somewhat in an altered state already because it was a very sort of visceral, competitive guy. But he was never a particularly good Frisbee player. He was very good at other things, such as uh, you should see him do a nutty nodder. He did that on the Johnny Carson show. But all of a sudden, he felt like a better Frisbee player. He could throw a Frisbee farther. And having seen Victor's in my show, he was sort of affected. He was out of his normal uh, disparaging, it can't be a sport kind of mode, go away, kid. You know, we, we know better. He, his mind was basically blown from that day. And he told me, okay, when, when Octad comes around, I'm going to have a disc that flies farther than a CPI. We're going we're gonna to change the game. And, and this was a major departure for him. It's interesting how if you get someone completely out of their comfort zone, how they're open to new ideas. He did show up with a new disc at Octad the so-called uh, Octad Super Pro, and he had cut the ridges way down and made fewer of them, but it still didn't fly as far as the CPI. So he went back to the drawing board and came up with the G-Series, and that was a major departure. The, the 40 moles and the 50 moles did fly farther than the CPI, and uh, that led to many other things for Mr. 
as you, he decided to part ways with Whammo and start disc golf, and he was off on a new career, and so was disc golf. Wow, I love hearing about these cusp moments in Frisbee history where uh, something pivotal happened, and it could have gone a completely different way, but it just led us it led us to the great place that we are today. Um, that whole moment of throwing the CPI back and forth and finding out, hey, look, I can step back 10 feet and just the mind blowing, like, whoa, the disc design does make a difference and it changes how you play the game. And it really, uh, I don't know, it makes you think a little bit differently about it. It's not just a toy. This can actually become a sport. And then here we are today, freestyle, disc golf, ultimate, it really changed a lot. So It is. It really is amazing how it could have gone either direction in those early days. You know, that's kind of a journey in life just in general we're constantly making choices that you know if we had made the other choice oh my gosh my life would have been so much different yeah Um, totally i mean for me personally i could say that about freestyle if i had not decided to try that nail delay that one day uh, i wouldn't have the same friends i wouldn't have the same wife i wouldn't have the same passion my life would be very different. So I'm really glad that I did that. But who knows what would have happened if I had gone another direction? I know. Well, you know, for me, it was, you know, I was always into sports. And uh, when I was younger, I was really into to baseball and it was really quite good. But I also had really long hair. And so I didn't really fit into the whole idea of being clean cut. I was sort of looked at as this like hippie kid. And and uh, and I got teased a lot. And so that made me kind of like, well, I don't really want to participate in this because this isn't fun. <laughs> it's not fun to be teased. And that's where I found Frisbee and this alternative sport. And if I had not had long hair, maybe I would have made a whole different path in life. But because I was, you know, alternative and a little different, Frisbee was a perfect fit for me. So that was a, a big moment for me in, in making a choice in going towards the alternative sport direction. Oh, that's funny. I love that you attribute it to your long hair. You had long hair, so you were different, and you needed a different sport to to be accepted into. Talking to you, you've had long hair for probably most of your life, yes? Yeah, well, it's kind of funny. So in high school and just after high school, I was really like not, I mean, I wasn't against long hair, but for me personally, I really liked being clean cut because I didn't want to be different. and I didn't want to stand out. I didn't want to be teased. And then uh, it happened the opposite way. I started playing Frisbee and people were so accepting that I thought, you know what, I'm just going to stop worrying about what people think. And then I grew my hair out <laughs> and I've had wow. it ever since. That's so funny. We kind of had a, a, the opposite experience in regards to our hair, you know, and again, as I've said before, let your freak flag fly and wherever the wind blows, just go with it. Yep, totally. Well, and that's like, we've talked to so many people. Uh, this freestyle Frisbee community is very accepting. Everyone's welcome. So let your freak flag fly and we will welcome you in. Yes, indeed. And I, I guess on that note, I will talk to you next week, Jake. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us, or for more info, check us out at frisbeeguru.com. Home to Haynesville, shooting the frisbees, and live streaming freestyle frisbee. Oh, yeah!